Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that our salvation in Christ is freely given to us. And yet we recognize, as that song describes from the scripture, that it was not cheap, nor was it freely purchased. Purchased at a great cost. Jesus, indeed, our great Savior, was the suffering servant. He served us by rescuing us, by laying down his life, him becoming sin for us, that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Father, for that great message that Jesus' suffering in our place completely pays the price for the sins of all who receive him. Now, would you help us, Father, as we get into a subject that's challenging, to say the least, for any of us, for me especially, talking about discipline? Help me to make it clear in the way that I speak. Help us to hear what you want us to hear. Holy Spirit, would you drive home the message to our hearts? Thank you for your word that tells us the truth that we need to hear. Thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth, that you've given us your your word as the truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to talk about discipline, and you all say, Amen. Yes. Um, I do need the grace of God to condense what I'm going to say, so I'll be doing that as we go here. But when I was a child, my parents disciplined me every single day. I mean, all the time. As well they should. Amen. And to give myself a little bit of a break there, the reason they did was because discipline is not just punishment. It includes negative consequences for negative things that we do, but discipline is also instruction and and correction. So discipline is that whole spectrum of what we need to learn in order to, well, as one definition puts it, um, it molds character and enforces correct behavior, and it puts the person being disciplined in a state of good order so that they function in the way intended. So I'm still working on functioning in the way that God intended me, but hopefully I'll get there sooner or later. Children need lots of loving discipline, don't they? A lot of that involves instruction, verbal. When they're very little, it's, it's a lot of hands-on instruction. And often it does involve physical, uh, negative physical consequences. So that's what discipline is. Because children are foolish, meaning that they have much to learn about right and wrong, skills for life. They need lots of loving discipline. And in this life, we never outgrow our need for discipline. So today we're going to look at um, discipline in the church, and I'm going to start off by talking about how God disciplines us, just very briefly talk about that. It's a whole subject within itself, and then how we discipline ourselves, and then we'll talk some about how we discipline one another in the church. So we're going to look at a text in Hebrews 12, in Hebrews chapter 12. Basically, I'm just going to read it and let it speak for itself and just to drive home the point that God disciplines us in love. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of, father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So I'm just going to highlight three things. Again, this is worth a whole message in itself. But first of all, God disciplines us in love. God disciplines us in love. He has good goals for us. That's how he disciplines us in love. We often say, at least in, you used to, be able, used to say to kids, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And God really does use painful circumstances to discipline us, and not to, specifically to punish us, but to train us. He uses hardships and sufferings in our lives to correct us and to cause us to be more dependent upon him. So we might think, well, if God loved me, he wouldn't let me suffer and struggle. And what God says in this text is because he loves us, he disciplines us through suffering and struggle, just as he did his son Jesus. And how is this love? Because he has good goals for us. So secondly, we trust God and his purposes in disciplining us. We submitted ourselves to earthly fathers who discipline us, and they were not perfect. But God disciplines us that we may share his holiness. And we have to ask ourselves, do I really want that? Do I value that enough to, to, by faith, embrace God's discipline of me as good and loving? And then thirdly, very similar point, uh, we endure God's discipline because of its results. All discipline for the moment, as we know, hurts and is not joyful, but painful. It seems to be pointless, pointless pain. But for those who have been trained by it, the word there, we get the word gymnasium from that word trained. Later, later it yields, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness or the result of peace and righteousness. We're more stable. We're more enjoying our, a peaceful relationship with God. We're not causing trouble for others because we're more disciplined according to God's design for us. So that's why we endure our sufferings as discipline. God has good goals for us. And a, a takeaway for me is God is using Parkinson's in my life to discipline me. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't understand how he's doing, you know, the whys and what fors. I just know that by this, this passage, he is using that in my life to make me more like him, to make me more like his son, and to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So I got that going for me. And that's... That's how God works. He uses the hard things in our lives to discipline and instruct us. So not only does God discipline us in love, but he disciplines us so that we'll learn to discipline ourselves. A couple texts we'll look at there. Uh, just like when we train our kids, we want them to become more self-disciplined. We want them to embrace the things that we're teaching them. 
So one text that, where Paul uses the word discipline is in 1 Timothy 4. He says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, or discipline yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. So what Paul's saying is discipline yourself. Don't get caught up in religious speculation, in foolish ideas, debating about things that don't cause us to be built up in faith, hope, love, and growth in Christ. Instead, train or discipline yourself for godliness. And we recognize that we won't grow in godliness unless we are disciplining ourselves through prayer, through restraining our desires, through embracing things that cause us to grow in faith and hope and love, uh, prayer, Bible study, submitting ourselves to one another in the body, taking action in our lives that causes Christ's faith to be advanced in our lives and our hatred of sin to be increased and our love for his holiness. So that takes discipline, self-effort, dependent self-effort on God. And then another text where Christ, uh, Paul talks about Discipline is 1 Corinthians 9, 27, where he says, I discipline my body and make it and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the context of that verse, Paul's talking about doing all things for the sake of the gospel. And he's saying he, so he can continue to be a servant of the gospel. So to that end, he disciplines his body. He denies it from acting out any desires that would disqualify him. He uses athletic terms like we're the season of the Olympics. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things in order to win. I don't run aimlessly, so he runs with purpose. He disciplines himself with purpose. So Olympic athletes discipline their minds and bodies to qualify and win. Uh, we might wish the Americans would do a little bit more of that. but uh, So we must discipline ourselves if we are to grow in godliness and serve Christ with effectiveness and integrity. So I look at these two things about God disciplining us in love and us disciplining ourselves to point out this fact that discipline is normal and a necessary part of the Christian life. So we bring that into the body of Christ. How do we do that for one another in the church? And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. We discipline one another for correction. How do we discipline one another in the church? Should we? Are we our brothers and sisters' keeper? After all, we live in America, and in America, I got, I've got a right to privacy, right? Uh, no one's supposed to stick their nose in my business, especially when I come to church. I don't expect anybody to get into my business at church. Hopefully, many of us know that our culture's independent streak must not override the nature of Christ's church as an interconnected family as a community of brothers and sisters in Christ who share life together. So much of the New Testament teaching is we love one another, we serve one another, we, what we do impacts one another. Uh, when we sin without repenting, we impact one another negatively. When we rejoice together and honor one another, we celebrate one another. Therefore, we are accountable to one another in the church to care enough to speak the truth in love when we know a brother or sister is caught in sin. Of course, the closer we are to one another in Jesus-centered relationships, in which it is normal for us to encourage one another in God's word, the more this preventative care will keep us from going on in unrepentant sin, just as regular health habits help us to, to, to ward off uh, sickness. 
Sometimes we don't exercise enough self-discipline to keep killing that old residual corruption. Sometimes we need the loving discipline of brothers and sisters in Christ to help us see it, to own our sin, and to turn from it. The goal is always restoration. Restoration to obedience to Christ and to right relationships in the body of Christ. So we see that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. We looked at that a few weeks ago when we were in Galatians. And just to highlight it very briefly, uh, Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, the word restore is used in other places to re- talk about resetting a broken bone or mending a net. And who is qualified to do that? Well, if you are spiritual, that is, you're living and walking by the, fr- the Holy Spirit, you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and you've got the, the log pulled out of your own eye to deal with the specks in other people's eyes, as Jesus gave that imagery. You're just, we're to correct one another in a spirit of gentleness, not harsh or prideful in attitude, not with emotions out of control. We're to do it in a clear-headed way. And we need to be watchful over our own selves, that we don't slip into pride or sinful anger, to harshness toward a sinning brother. But what do we do if the person doesn't repent? In spite of our loving desires, our loving efforts to, to bring restoration, if they don't repent, what do we do? Well, Jesus gives us some instruction here from Matthew 18. And we'll kind of look at this a chunk at a time here. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 16. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So either this doesn't apply only if someone sins against us personally. It certainly applies in that. If we become aware of a sin, like the Galatians 6 passage, we know for certain that a brother or sister in the body have sinned, either against us or we're aware, we go to them. And so the first step in dealing with a brother's sin against you or that you become aware of is to go to him alone, to go to him or her alone. Don't talk about it with others. This goes on a lot. We skip this step a ton. It's like the first thing people want to do is they want to go talk about how this person wronged me or they think they're aware that someone's committed a sin and they want to go talk about it with other people rather than going directly to them. So I've been amazed over the years how people neglect this step. I've had people come to me and begin to launch into a detailed account of another's wrongdoing and ask, well, have you gone to them yet? Well, no. And I say, well, you need to do that. So stop right here. Don't talk to me about it. Go talk to them. We had a situation in another church I was a part of where uh, a guy came to me and began to share how a Christian businessman in, our, in the church had been doing some unethical things. I asked him, have you gone to him yet? He said, no, he didn't want to go to him. And so the issue there was, was he sure the businessman had done these wrongs? If yes, he's got the firsthand knowledge, and so he needed to go to him. If he was just going off of rumors or gossip, then he needed to quit listening to it and exhort those who claimed to know of the wrongs to go to the businessman. But sometimes we're not sure we know the facts. or It's always good to check the facts when we come to a person, if we go to them alone, 
say, have I understood the situation correctly? So if, if they, you know, you, you present to them, I believe this is what's going on, do, do I have the right understanding? So give them the grace to answer for themselves if you've got the facts straight, because sometimes we don't have the facts straight. Sometimes it's very obvious, sometimes we don't know. And he says, Jesus says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Listens means he owns the sins, repents, you've gained your brother. That was our goal, to gain him, to restore him to fellowship with God and with us and with others. In other words, we disciplined our brother or sister in love because we loved them enough to care and we, we went to them in a respectful way and brought the matter to their attention. And if they repent, then we've gained them back to fellowship. But he says, but if he is, does not listen, does not own his sin and repent, take one or two with you, that the matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This was a principle from the Old Testament that carries over into the New. So who qualifies to be another witness? Uh, not just someone who's going to take your side, but someone who's going to be a godly person, an objective person, a person who uh, has a reputation for being ethical themselves and who loves people and is going to be an objective listener and observer. Preferably one who may know of what's going on to some extent. In another church I served, there was a staff member who was becoming increasingly involved with the woman who's not his wife, which was not a good thing. And it gradually happened over time, so it put everybody in an awkward position of wondering, well, is what, is what we think we see really going on or not? And pretty soon we're going to him one at, one at a time saying, hey, this looks not good, and he would tell us, no, there's no problem, it's okay. And uh, after a while it became more and more uh, uh, outwardly problematic, so two or three would go at a time and still get turned away. And so the people who were involved with that were those who were observing behavior that looked more and more compromising. And you do that in hopes that uh, the, the evidence or the, the testimony of two or three will carry some weight. And usually what I've seen in these situations is you, you spend a long time going one-on-one, you spend a long time going two or three-on-one, and you just let that go for quite a while, hoping, hoping, hoping to not go to the third step or the fourth step. And in this situation, it had to go to the third step because there was no repentance. And later on, it became obvious that there was indeed an inappropriate relationship going on because he divorced his wife and married this other woman. So what Jesus says in Matthew eighteen seventeen, I think that may be up on the screen next. Jesus says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And then he says, if he refuses to listen to the church, what to do then? So the goal is to involve as few as possible in confronting a sinning brother. But at some point, Jesus says, if the person refuses to listen to the two or three, we are to tell it to the church. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus said and gives specific instructions. The church is not fully formed yet when he gives these instructions. But in some fashion or another... Uh, we see the, the, the goal of it is if he refuses to listen even to the church. In other words, the church has a more unified corporate voice to speak into the person's life. And so they're still seeking, at that point, the church is still seeking for the restoration of the brother or sister. And uh, this also helps to, as things get known by the church as a whole, in order to help alleviate gossip, 
At some point, you, you need to tell it to the church after you've let steps one and two work their way for a while. And what we did at, at a prior church was we would read a letter to the body describing not in gory details, but just in general terms what had gone on, the steps taken, and then uh, exhort the body to pray for the person and some who would know the person, would, they would continue to go to him or her and seek for their repentance and restoration. That's always the goal, repentance and restoration. And then Jesus says in the fourth step, if he refuses to listen even to the church. So at, at this point, uh, one-on-one has gone on for a while, two or three-on-one has gone for a while, and now the whole church has been made aware, and that goes on for a while. And then Jesus said, in that context, he said, let, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now the Jews would have heard that in their context as an outcast or someone who's rejected from the, the covenant community. Is this what Jesus meant? Um, excluding the, the unrepentant person from fellowship? Yet Jesus was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He ate with them. He reached out to them. So th- what does this mean? Well, it means to treat the unrepentant person as they have chosen to live, as an outsider to the Christian faith, to the Christian fellowship. They've chosen to live that way and act that way, so we treat them that way. And um, that doesn't mean complete avoidance. It means you're reaching out to them as one who needs to repent. So 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then later, Paul corrected the uh, Corinthian church for this individual who uh, he was writing about had committed incest, and the body was just tolerating it. They were doing nothing about it. And then Paul gave them this exhortation, and then later on they repented. So he had to come back and say, no, now you need to receive him back. So you've let the discipline run its course. You've done it for the purpose of restoration. Now restore the, the person. So there's the point that we take away from this is you don't have close Christian fellowship with them while longing for them to repent and to be restored, you don't avoid them altogether. You just don't treat them as if everything's okay. You don't spend hours with them letting the good times roll without addressing the issue of where they are at with the Lord and with their obedience to Him. Uh, you warn, you admonish them. Uh, once a man who had gone through all four steps of discipline came into a church for one of the services and several spoke to him before and after the service to see if he was repentant and instruction then led to restitution he didn't fully get the restitution he still needed to make to people he had wronged in the body and so um, uh, eventually he got that and he was restored So in this day and age of the attitude of my right to do what makes me happy and right to live as I please without consequences, and especially a church telling me how to live, 
The practice of church discipline seems crazy, a relic from the Dark Ages, akin to the Spanish Inquisition and the Salem Witch Trials. And certainly churches can mess up in a big way in carrying out church discipline. But to be faithful to the Lord in the New Testament, discipline in the church is not optional. We discipline one another for correction, restoration, and protection. Just as parents can't let impurity or or sin go on in their home without discipline, neither can the church. Paul said in one passage, this is not up on your screen, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And I'm going to have the uh, passage from Matthew 18, 18 to 20, so skip ahead to that. Who gives the right to the church to do this? Jesus says, Jesus authorizes his disciples to carry out this ministry of church discipline. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything on, about, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. There am I among them. One thing to note here is how important prayer is in loving discipline, seeking wisdom, insight into truth, desperate dependence upon our Heavenly Father. One situation that caused great grief in the, in the last church was uh, a woman claiming that her husband had committed a horrible sin, and it was a horrible sin if it was true. And with many meetings of two and three with him, he consistently denied it. But we had reasons for questioning her story as well. We felt the weight of being wrong either way, either wrongly exonerating the man or wrongly disciplining him. And there were different parties who, think, who thought they knew the truth. So there were some on the, the woman's side who thought their, her version of the story was true. And there were some on the, men, the man's side who thought his version of the story was true. So they're all looking at us saying, what's he going to do? And so we prayed and we prayed and we prayed for weeks. It went, went into months. We felt like, man, we feel like we're just dragging our feet on this. But eventually it became clear that she had wrongly accused him of what she accused him of. And so God was gracious to us in that. We knew that God knew the truth. That's, that's what was so hard about it. God knows the truth. And we don't always do this perfectly well, perfectly right. But uh, just like we exercise discipline in our homes, we must not withhold the loving grace of discipline toward one another. So God disciplines us in love. We discipline ourselves. And we discipline one another. And that is body life. Now, most of the time we don't get to this level where we have to to carry this out to the third and fourth step, thankfully. Uh, There's a lot of just one another body life that goes on that helps us to not go there and to to, uh, choose to obey before steps of discipline must be carried out. But we do it in love because of who Christ is for us. So I'm going to pray and and ask his help to... to, uh, Bring this to our hearts. Father, Father, you have disciplined us for our good, that we may share your holiness. We thank you, Father, for your deep love for us, and the loving discipline you've exercised toward us, because you had good goals for us, that we might bear the fruit of 
righteousness and peace. Father, we thank you that so much of our lives together involves just being around one another, helps correct one another, exposing our weaknesses and sins to one another in all kinds of ways that don't come out in a big public setting. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us without instruction through your son Jesus and the Apostle Paul to show us that sometimes in love we must carry out discipline measures. And thank you, Father, that you use that to bring people back to yourself or also you make it clear who is not going to do that. So God, would you cause us to love your discipline to love the way that we can encourage one another and to hate sin and to resist it and to embrace holiness and righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, that you love your church so much that you, you have her purity in mind. You have your best design for her in mind. Thank you, Father, that Jesus, because of what we sang earlier, he became the punishment for our sins. He took the punishment for our sins in our place. He stood condemned in our place. So if we're in Christ, this is never about condemnation. It is always about restoration. Thank you, Father, for that grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.